Hello and good evening, and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me again today. I really appreciate it. I am so honored by your presence. Um, I know you listen to me from all over the world, so welcome to another podcast. Uh, And today we are on the series of History of India. We closed last yesterday's series, uh, yesterday's podcast on the British East India Company and uh, slavery. There was slavery and serfs on the Indian subcontinent. Now, I want to continue a little bit in that uh, in that range, and the reason being that we were told by uh, we were told by the Indian National Congress and their Marxist uh, regime that India was rich before uh, the British came, and the British came and, and 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 stole all our gold and money and forty five trillion dollars and blah blah blah. So that means everyone had money, everyone was rich, and uh, we were we are thirty three percent of the world's GDP. So what happened to all of it? Well, the British stole it. Typical of the of the Indian National Congress. They lied. They lost power, and now they're trying their polarization and trying to pretend that oh they were the real secular uh, people, and we're trying to change history. Well, my dear friends. Today's podcast is about history. The Indian peasantry, the life of the peasantry, or the peasants on the Indian subcontinent under the Mughal rule. And I am going to read for you from a book, uh, two chapters if I can, called uh, The Aggregating System of Mughal India from 1556 to 1707, because we had just completed um, the previous uh, episode on the Mughal, uh, the Mughal regime in India, the Mughal occupa- occupation in India. So this book is by Irfan Habib. You can get it online on Amazon.com or any Indian store. Uh, it is called uh, The Aggregate System of Mughal India. I would suggest that you buy it. It's beautiful. It's a lovely. It's a lovely book. It gives you a lot of information. And I'm going to read for you from chapter three: the material conditions of the life of the Indian peasantry to show you that the bulk of the people on the Indian subcontinent were peasants and they were poor. So poverty did not start with the British. Poverty already existed on the Indian subcontinent in mass, and two percent of the noble elite were control the mass of the wealth which still exists today it hasn't changed so it's not the bjp who's bought this in uh it existed under feudalism and feudalism has not changed we've changed the labor but the mentality is still the same so let's get down straight to it and this is from chapter uh, chapter 3 page 103 so the common people, declares a Dutch observer during the reign of Jahangir, uh, live in poverty so great and miserable that the life of the people can be depicted uh, or accurately described only as the home of, of the stark want and dwelling place of bitter woe. To attempt a uh, description of the normal articles of consumption of the peasants in our period is really tantamount to outlining the lowest peasant, uh, the lowest possible level of subsidence, a dictum which most contemporary writers would probably have already uh, agreed. It is a pity that 
that on the very important subject of the quantity of food consumed by the peasants, our sources are not very helpful. We are, however, slightly better served with regards to the kinds of food which entered into popular diet. It is naturally to be expected that in Bengal, Orissa, Sin, and Kashmir, rice being the major crop, should have formed the staple diet of the masses. Um, a similar position was enjoyed uh, by rice, juvari, and bajra in Gujarat. But generally speaking, it was the coarsest varieties of this produce which the peasant was able to retain for his own family. We know that in Kashmir, the rice eaten by the ordinary people was very coarse. Okay. Um, and in Bihar, the indigenous indigent was compelled to eat the pea-like grain kisari, which used to cause sickness. In Sarkar Sevan, that's sin, the peasants lived on the seed of wild grass growing around Lake Mancha for quite a long period each year, despite the fact that the wheat flourished best in the Agra Delhi region, it would not form part of the food of the common people, which consisted of rice, millets, and pulses. Similarly, through Malva, as we have seen, had, had wheat uh, enough for export. Terry, whose experience was min mainly gained there, says that the ordinary sort of people did not eat wheat, but used a flour of coarse grain, probably javar. Food grains were generally supplemented by a few vegetables or pot herbs. Fish entered into the mass diet in some provinces of Bengal, Orissa, Sin, and Kashmir. On account of both in, in indigence and religious scruples against beef and pork, meat uh, was but rarely consumed by the peasant. Um... Uh, my friend, it is. Uh, it was really tough for me to read this. I, I'm telling you, when I first read it, uh, it is completely contradictory to what the Indian National Col um, Indian National uh, Congress told us. Um, in one place, he says beans and other vegetables were usually on sale in the smallest villages. In Bengal, three or four sorts of vegetables were uh, were included, including the chief articles of food of the common people. Um, in Orissa, the brinjal was commonly eaten. Vegetables of different kinds were eaten in Kashmir. Um, in large villages, in a, in the large village, there is generally a Muslim governor, and there you find sheep, fowl, and pigeons for sale, but not in places where there were, where there were Hindus. Um, Journeying from Surat to Burhanpur complains that despite the country being plentiful, especially of cattle, the Banyans that... Uh, that will kill anything inhabiting all over, yet by the same reason they would sell us none. In Agra, workmen um, know little of the taste of meat. In Bengal, they will eat no flesh, nor kill no beast. Um, and that's rough to hear, my friends. So I'm going to continue page 105. It has been suggested earlier that the output of ghee per capita was higher in Mughal times than now. This shows, among other things, by the fact that it was a constant part of the staple diet in the Agra region and western India and was consumed by better-off 
by the people better off in Bengal, those who were rich. The people of Assam were, however, utterly uh, unfamiliar with it and regarded it with abhorrence. In Kashmir, too, the common people cooked their food in water um, and walnut oil, and ghee was regarded as delicacies. Uh, Travenir declared that even in the small villages, sugar and other sweetnesses, dried and liquid, can be produced in abundance, procured in abundance. And one may assume from this that gur, at any rate, was commonly consumed in villages. As for salt, it, it pro its price is, um, in terms of wheat, coated in the iron, was lower than those of Agra and Lahore in the 1860s. Um, but the railways brought about a substantial reduction in salt prices. So in 1894, at the two places, um, salt was worth in wheat a little more than half of what it was worth in 1595, 1596. By 1900s, then, salt consumption per capita would have been substantially higher than that in modal times. In the 17th century, the cost of transport made salt exceptionally scarce and dear in Bengal, and in parts of Bengal and Assam, people were driven to use as a substitute a bitter salty substance extracted from the ashes of banana stalks. The use of capsicums or chilies today, a necessary ingredient in every meal, however humble, was not then known. Spices such as cumin and seed, cumin seed, uh, coriander seed, and ginger were probably occasionally within the peasants' reach. But cloves, cardamom, and pepper were obviously too expensive for them, um, for him, at least in the central regions, where cloves were the cheapest before the Dutch imposed their monopoly on seaborne trade with Indonesia. They were looked upon by villager not apparently as an article of food, but as ornaments fit to adorn the necks of wife and children. During certain seasons, the peasants were presumably able to enjoy fruits of more common kind um, as well as growing wild. There is practically no information as to the prevalence of, of, of pan eating in the countryside, and no one can doubt if the habit could have been indulged in by the masses of the people. The intoxicant uh, tari or toddy was frequently noticed and consumed by European travelers, but it is obvious that it, its consumption was less widespread inland than in Gujarat and the Deccan. And the Deccan. Um, I think that's what he meant, Deccan, because he wrote Deccan. Okay, so to page 107. The extent of the use of opium is difficult to judge. Abdul Fazal speaks of the practice of doping of small children by the high and the lows, um, as if it was a peculiar custom confined to the Malva, uh, whereas in more recent days it was found to be much more widespread. Tobacco smoking had already be uh, become a mass habit by the end of the 17th century. Speaking ostensibly, Extensively of India in general, but really of Gujarat and the western coast. Friar uh, refers to the ordinary people smoking a pipe of tobacco. While we know that by this time the poor sort that had taken to smoking the tea root of, um, in Coromandel. From um, Sujan Rai's rhetoric, one may assume that people in northern India were also rapidly learning to smoke. The facts we have adduced would not have easily lent themselves to the purpose of an exact comparison. But generally speaking, if we can only 
take only the middle and the poor strata of Indian peasantry at around 1900. The change in diet would have been incon uh, seemed to have been inconsiderable. The peasant of Mughal, Mughal times was um, little more was more fortunate with ghee. Uh, his modern descendant had more salt and th and three entirely new articles of food, um, maize, potato, and chilies. But this was not was nearly all. So, in regard to clothing, our authorities are, are are generally brief and precise. On Hindustan, the country from Bihar to to Bera um, to uh, from Bera to Bihar. Babar observe, observes, peasants and the poor uh, go about completely barefooted. They tie on a thing called languta, a decency clout which hangs two spans below the navel. From the, from the tie of this pendant, other, another clout beneath it, it passed between the ties and made fast behind. Women would tie on a cloth, one half of which goes round the waist and another is thrown above the head. In other words, just the shortest dhoti suffice for men and a sari for women. Nothing or little else was worn. In Jahangir's reign, an English factor at Agra declared the plebeian sort is so poor that the greatest part of them go naked in the whole body in their whole body, save their privates. Uh, which they cover with a linen um, couverture or cotton. Um, Fitch says something that same thing while speaking of Benares and adds that in winter, in lieu of wool, the men wear quilted gowns of cotton like our mattresses and quilted caps. The, um, the clothing of the ordinary people are even more brief in Bengal. Large numbers of men and women say Abu if Faisal go naked and do not wear anything except from loincloth, uh, yes. Furthermore, in Orissa, women do not cover anything except their private parts, and large numbers made their coverings from leaves and trees. On other side, on another side, in Sin, the people of the country, I mean those who will inhabit other cities, are most part very rude and go naked in vast upward in the waist upwards with tur with turbans on their heads. In Kashmir, cotton was not worn at all. Both men and women put on a just a single woolen garment, called pattu, which came down to the ankles. They kept it unwashed on their bodies for three or four years till it was completely battered. Tattered. In Gujarat, the women's attire uh, was, de was described as compromising a lungi being tied loose over their shoulders, uh, belt-wise and tucked between their legs in nature of a short breech, uh, breeches and short bodice, these two being called the garb, going constantly without shoes and stockings. Of course, these are Europeans written, writing it. Though we have no direct evidence bearing upon the point, conditions were probably similar in, Mughal, in the Mughal Deccan, uh, a large cotton-growing area. On the other hand, the scantiness of clothing be became very marked as one went to the Golconda and southern India. Uh, there can therefore be little doubt that the change by 1900 in respect to clothing has been substantial, pitiful as conditions were. Baba's description, for example, might have 
held a true uh, might have held true for parts of eastern Uttar Pradesh, but not for uh, the Dob or Punjab. Similarly, despite the great poverty of Bengal villages, the sari worn by women at any rate ruled out a statement from being made any longer in strain. The available information concerning the dwelling places of the peasants were rapidly surveyed. In Bengal, the ordinary hut is said to be as in the most part of India, very little, covered with straw. It was made by roping bamboo together upon walls, or rather plinths of mud excavated on the site. In Orissa, the walls made were made of reeds. In Bihar, most houses had roofs or earthenware tiles. The huts of peasants of the Dobe are described as bad as bad mud, uh, walled, ill-touched, covered houses. The villages on the banks of the Indus consisted of houses of wood and straw, which could always be shifted. In Ajmer province, the common people lived in tent-shaped uh, bamboo. Um, which are, in Ajmer province, the common people lived in tent-shaped bamboo huts. Round about uh, Malwa, the peasants lived in small round huts, miserable howls. The houses in Gujarat were roofed with tiles and often built with bricks and lime. In Kandesh and Bidar, however, the huts were again mud-walled and thatched. By this sounds, all this sounds familiar, and it is obvious that there are practically no change in housing conditions of the peasant for better or worse during the subsequent period uh, of colonial rule. The peasants' huts were made with materials that were most easily procurable and without the use of such building skill, so that the kind of material used together with the climate and soil bore almost the entire responsibility for such regional variations um, as existed. There was little within the hovel to attract attention of the contemporary observers. Furniture there is little or none except for some earthenware pots to hold and for cooking and two beds, one of the man and the other of the wife. This is said of workmen in Agra and there's no reason to accept that the peasants' possessions were a better scale. For Terry's testimony, we have added to this brief list of domestic articles the small iron hearths used by the common people for baking their cakes of bread. We also told that in southern India their plate is a leaf and a small plate of copper, of which the whole family eats. Um, so my friend, bearing the plates, the leaves as plates, because we know that's very Vedic and that's the ancient way of doing it. Um, by and large, the Indian peasants were poor during the Mughal time. There was nothing worth talking about the uh, the great um, the great 35% of the world's GDP came from India did not trickle down to the peasants which were the bulk of the population. So next time um, someone tells you that India was rich during the Mughal rule, you tell them to read their own book by Irfan Habib, chapter number 3, um, on starting on page 103, and you can see the poverty of the Indian peasant. It is um, it is astounding, absolutely astounding, and um, 
you understand basically what I'm trying to do here is for you to understand the currents that form our waves. We do not go from rich to poor in such a hurry, okay? Because economics takes a very long time to to build or to break. It does. It's not built in a day, neither is it broken in a day. So uh, the uh, the British were here too short a time to even cause that much of economic drought in the country. Uh, so this probably started way, way, way before. Um, and so this is just a Mughal period, and I'm going to continue with the conditions of the life of the peasantry during the Mughal rule. Um, on page 111, um, Presumably from the fact that great copper mines lay in northern India, the peasants within the Mughal Empire were little better served with this metal. But the iron price for copper has been computed to be five times higher in terms of wheat than the price in 1914. This explains why um, Pelissart, the author, uh, refers only to earthen vessels even for cooking. Um, the earthen vessels were in fact almost universal among the peasants of the central regions till the earlier part of the 19th century. And it's only since then that they have entirely been replaced by brass or other metals. Uh, apart from the cots, there were probably little other wooden or bamboo furniture except perhaps low stool called chowki, the use of which was a traditional part of the village etiquette. Tin boxes and a few little trinklets were indeed all that could be needed to complete the picture of the peasants' domestic possessions around 1900. And, um, and both times, filth and poverty made the peasants' family constantly vulnerable to smallpox and dreaded diseases. So, basically what he's trying to say here that the peasants, there were copper mines in North India. Uh, the peasants, um, the peasants in Northern India and peasants in India during that time should have been little better served with this material. But the copper price during Mo the Mughal time, the price of copper was five times in term higher in terms of wheat. So they were paid in wheat but five times higher. So who was going to buy that copper? So you can understand why the, the elite during the Mughal time lived in these fancy castles, lots of money and, and harems and gold, but it was paid for by the peasants who lived in abstract poverty with no access to these this. Uh, it is outstanding. Well, you can thank uh, the Indian National Congress for the lies they told us. Um, as for jewelry, the custom um, as for the jewelry, the custom of converting savings into women's ornaments was apparently universal. Uh, and the foreign travelers note from almost everywhere the extraordinary amount of ornaments which women might wear. Their descriptions of these are are very general as a rule, but from them and from a specific statement by Friar, it would appear that for the poor people, ornaments consisted of copper, glass, or conch shells, or even as we have seen, one at one time of clothes. Yes, my friend, our ancestors did not have the money, but it was okay, they were wonderful people, and we thank them for the sacrifices they made. 
because we have come to where we are today because of them. So we have to start by saying thank you. Uh, to judge from the frequent accounts of rites, festivals, pilgrimages preserved for us in contemporary accounts, it is obvious that they played a noticeable part in the peasant's life. Such occasions, the marriages of his children, the funeral rites for the dead, and the visits to the riverside festivals must have consumed a, a part of this meager resources of increase uh, or increase his debt. Indeed, a contemporary Dutch observer especially ca uh, castigates the people of Gujarat who in years of good harvest um, spent in and squandered their surplus on their dwellish festivals for which he says God in his usual way chastised them with the great famines of 1630 and 1632. So um, that's the part of um, jewelry and metal that was used. We're going to the part of famines during the Mughal rule. We've only talked about famines under the British. Uh, the British were bad, the British uh, had famines, which, uh, okay, I'll give them, not a problem, uh, because it was a mess. But we're going to talk about famines under the British rule and what happened to the people during this time. And it's a good read, my friend. Uh, goodness, there's a lot on that. He wrote a lot of pages. So we go to page 112. There are 10 pages on it. We have so far seen the peasants only in the poverty and squalor that were his lot in a normal period. But the monsoons upon which this harvest depended were not only constant in showering their bounty, um, all might be lost if the rains failed at the crucial time or poured down such success as to drown the crops. The railway network in time offered means whereby food grains could be rapidly transported from the surplus to the scarcity areas. This, benefited, uh, this benefit conferred by the railways added in due course another item to well-publicized list of achievements of the British administration. Um, the conversion of food famines into f into work famines, which this claim we have, of course, no concern here. But in so far as attempts have been made to pres to present the famines on the British in a softer light than more than the Mughals, um, a few necessary comments are relegated to a footnote. And uh, as idea of the frequency and violence of these calamities in our period. Um, may be gained from the following chronicles of famines and, sca and, and scarcities compiled from contemporary sources. We must, however, remember that this can have no presentions to completeness and the list will probably extend as more evidence becomes available. Our period until uh, began at the tail end of the terrible famine, which for two successive years, 1554 to 1555 and 1555 to 1556, had ravaged all eastern parts of Hind, particularly the territories around Agra, Bayana and Delhi. People died in groups of tens and twenties more and more. Dead received neither graves nor coffins. The common people lived on the seeds of the Egyptian thorn, while dry grass and cow hides, uh, wild grass and dry cow hides. Baduani uh, claims to be an eyewitness to the acts of cannibalism. Most of the affected country were re rendered desolate. Cultivators and peasants disappeared, and rebels plundered towns of the Muslims. Agra itself was desolated, and only some housing remaining. Abdul Ifazal says that the scarcity was over by the time of Akbar 
secession in February 1556, probably owing to a successful rubby crop. Uh, severe scarcity seems to have affected Gujarat sometime during the 1560s. It, be it became common during its visitation for very acute famine around uh, Sirhind in or around about 1572, to 1573. In 1574-75, there was a, a serious famine again in Gujarat, this time accompanied by pests. Large numbers of people, both lowly and respectful, migrated away from this province. There was also general apprehension of drought this year in northern India, but the danger was averted by timely showers. Uh, some parts of it, however, seem to have been scarcity, have experienced scarcity in 1578-79. In 1587 and 1588, locusts destroyed crops in Bakar territory Sindh. Most people migrated and the Sanja and the Baluch, plundering both sides of the river, did not let a single place of habitation ex escape them. In 1589-90, drought caused a famine in the same locality. There were general insufficiencies of rain, 1596. High prices plunged the world into suffering, and Akbar ordered free kitchens to be opened every, in every city. While rep repeating these statements, another historian describes the same drought and famine as of extreme severity, the scarcity continu continuing for three or four years in Hindustan. There was considerable mor morality, and people were driven by hunger to eat uh, carrion and 1597, there was an acute scarcity from the drought in Kashmir, where destitute people, having no means of nourishing their children, exposed them for sale in public places of the city. Writing in 1615, Jahangir refers to the spread of bubonic plague from Punjab to Sirhind, the Dobe and Delhi in this, and preaching the year. His uh, cities. He cites a, a, a learned opinion that this was due to an excessive drought that was experienced for two years, uh, 1613 uh, and 14, and 1614 and 15. But no particulars about the scarcity are supplied. The Great Famine of 1630-1632 was probably the most destructive of all recorded famines and calamities in the Mughal India, and certainly one which left the deepest impression on the contemporaries. It affected Gujarat and most of the Dakar. Uh, there was a first complete failure of rains in these areas in 1630. The next year, the crops were prom promising in Gujarat. They were first attacked by mice and locusts, and then destroyed by excessive rain. While in the Deccan, the drought seems to have continued. Pestilence followed close in the wake of these famines to carry away those who had escaped uh, starvation. The most harrowing senses were witnessed. Parents sold their children. There was a whole-scale migration in the direction of less effective lands, but few could complete the first stages of the journey before death overtook them and deadlock, dead blocked the roads. In the first year, the poor largely perished, but in the second the turn of some of the rich also came. Cattle hide and hog flesh were eaten. Uh, the crushed bones of the dead were mixed with salts and sold with flour. And ultimately, cases of cannibalism became common. 
the transportation of grain by Banjaras to Gujarat and Malwa and beyond was hampered in 1630 by the task of feeding um, by the ta- task of feeding Sajahan's army encamped in Buranpur. Uh, but though the army was dispersed and the Banjaras were reaching Surat with large supplies in the falling year, the prices still remain prohibitive. Unprecedented grain accrued to the imperial treasury in Malva by the sale of the grain for supplies of the Dakan. As the usual practice of the administration, lungers of free kitchen were open in major cities, more as a gesture of charity. However, uh, however, than any ambition of providing substantial relief, the land revenue remission of necessity was considerable. Of all the affected provinces, Gujarat suffered the most heavily. These millions uh, of of its inhabitants are said to have died through the ten months the, during the ten months of preceding October um, sixteen thirty one, while a million reputed, reputedly perished in the country of Ahmednagar. The cities of Gujarat were by death or flight reduced to almost one tenth of their former state. The villages could hardly have fared any better. Sadiq Khan declares uh, the Parangana, uh, Paranganas of Sultanpur, Nadur, Mandu, Ahmedabad, and indeed the entire province of Khandesh and some Paranganas of Balagai were rendered utterly desolate. The peasants had to be brought in from other parts to settle there. Late in 1634, after these Three good seasons, it was reported from Gujarat that although the towns were recovering in the population, the villages filled but slowly. In 1638-1639, the marks of the famine could yet be seen everywhere, and cultivation had obviously not recovered fully till even the end of the second decade of Sajahan's reign. In 1636-1637, Punjab was reported to have suffered, to be suffering from famine and scarcity. High grains, uh, grain prices prevailed in Agra in the summer of 1638, but there was no evidence of famine condition. In uh, 1640, excessive rain and resulted in inundations destroyed the Karif crop in Kashmir. And 1642, famine conditions prevailed there again from the same cause, but about 30,000 people to flee in distress to Lahore. The latter also witnessed a prolonged drought in Orissa which disrupted its customary exports of grain to Coromandel. During the 1640s, the rain failed repeatedly in parts of northern India. 1644, Agra province was thus affected through famine, and conditions were not reported. In February 1646, it was reported at at the court of the indigent um, were being forced to sell their children owing to high prices of food grains in the Punjab, but the distress was apparently limited. In 1646, drought was experienced at Agra and Ahmedabad. In 1647, the rains failed utterly in Marwar, which had had occasioned a famine, insomuch that those parts are either mortality or people's flight, become wholly depopulate and impassable. In 1648, there was again a partial failure of the grain in the Agra region. Uh, 
Bengal, on the other hand, was visited by an excessive rain in 1644-45 and 1648, spoiling the sugarcane crops. In 1650, there was a failure of rains in all parts of India. The death of corn was reportedly from Avad, and the scarcity affected the country between Agra and Ahmedabad. In 1651, in the Punjab, the crops were harmed first by drought and then excessive rain. So the grain prices became very high and the peasants were unable to pay for the full revenue. In Malton, uh, the province, uh, the rabbi crop of 1650 had been spoiled by locusts and the Karif, as elsewhere, by drought, while the rabbi in 1651 also suffered from inundations. In 1655, the Karif crops in parts of Baglat regions of the Mughal Dakkan was damaged by late and heavy showers. In 1655, the Karif crops in parts of the Baglat region, sorry, a prolonged period of scarcity in northern India began in 1658, caused initially perhaps by the ravages of the War of Succession. It was sustained by the first four or five years of Aranzib's reign by various vagaries in the monsoons. The scarcity was felt particularly in the region around Agra, Delhi and Lahore, and in on the fourth of the regal year, 1661-1662. Langars had been established on large scale by the administration in the cities. The worst sufferer however, was Sin, where famines and plague raged in 1659 and 1660 and swept away parts of the people, uh, most parts of the people. Gujarat suffered from drought in 1659, 1660 and again in 63, raising food grain prices uh, so great that in 1664 it was thought that another failure of the rains would utterly dis people all these parts a fear which happily did not materialize. Um, even Malwa, the land of perpetual plenty, was affected, for owing to the war, the, the Karif crop of 1658 was largely destroyed. Eastwards in Bengal, a local famine developed in 62-63 in Dhaka, the distress from, the, from uh, which was intensified owing to the interference which the transport of food grains by officials. Uh, ex- exactions and obstructions on the routes. But generally speaking, except for sin, there was no suggestion that the large scales mortality or, or the usual scenes of horror marking a serious famine were observed anywhere. In 1670, the Karif crop failed again, um, completely in Bihar from, from want of rain and during the succeeding year of the accurate famine and ravaged the territory, extending from the west to Banaras to Rajmahal. We have an eyewitness account of how multitudes per- perished on the on the routes in the city of Patna and how parents sold their children. In Patna alone, 90,000 were established, est- estimated to have died and of towns and of the towns near Patna. Some were quite depopulated, having not any persons in them. About the same time, a severe drought affected Rai Bag territory in Bijapur, resulting in migration and the sale of children. And I am coming to the end here. My goodness, I'm just tired of repeating it, but we'll go on. Late in 1678, grain prices were reported to have risen 
greatly in Lahore, but no account of the distress is available. There was drought also in the Ajmer province, resulting in migrations towards Malwa, but showers later in the season averted disaster. In 1682, famine and scarcity prevailed in Gujarat, and there was a popular riot against the governor of Ahmedabad over the high grain prices. Drought was also experienced in, da in the Dakkan, where plague began to rage in towns from this year. The crops failed again in the peninsula in 1684, and prices were stated to have risen greatly. Gujarat continued to be the subject of scarcity conditions. In 1685, the prices of food grains rose so much that all duties on them had been to, had to be remitted, and there was a riot in Ahmedabad against the Kazi, who was thought to be in the league with the engrossers. The high prices continued into the following year owing to that drought. The drought then extended to the whole of the Dakkan in 1686, or what happened to the poor and, indig and indigent cannot be recorded. Um, Sindh was also probably affected in the same time, since a very severe scarcity accompanied by epidemic occurred there during a governor's term that lasted from 1684 to 1688. In 1691, both famine and pest visited Gujarat, and scarcity was experienced again in 1694-95. The region around Delhi also felt the scarcity. Um, but the worst affected was Bagar, tract of the northeastern uh, edge of the Tar Desert. In its inhabitants migrated to other parts, eating carrion, selling their children, and dying in their thousands. There was also famine in Orissa during 1695. In 1996-97, uh, drought affected parts of Gujarat and Marwa, uh, Marwa, and not a trace of grass or water could be found between Patan and Jodhpur. It also extended to Sin, where 80,000 people in, Ta in Tata alone reportedly died of plague during the drought. A great famine began in the Dakkan in 1702. In February, it was reported to the court of um, Sangaman, Sangamaner, that's the Aurangabad province, uh, that owing to drought, most of the villages had been rendered desolate. In the course of the year, in the whole of the Dhaka, no rain fell that it was keeping with the interest of cultivation. In fact, the rains were so prod prodigious as to devastate the Karif harvest, Grain scarcely prevailed everywhere south of Narmada. The people were compelled to migrate from ancestral homes. Uh, the next year, 1703, brought no relief from owing to the excessive winter rains and the rabbi crops was damaged. Wheat suffering particularly from blight. Then, brought, then drought came. A historian speaks of it as, as the year for Maharashtra of famine and scarcity owing to the drought, the mortality of the people of the poor and the wail of the weak. Drought with its close companion plague continued in 1704. In the two years, 1702-3 and 1703-4 in the Dakkan, there expired there over two million of souls, fathers compelled by hunger, offering their children for a quarter or a half a rupee, and yet forced to go without food, finding no one to buy them. 
It will be observed that the evidence in our possession shows considerable variations in the frequency of famines in various religions. In part, this may be due to the fact that we are better informed about some provinces than others. But this will not, for example, explain why Bengal, for which our information uh, during the latter half of the 17th century is, is considerable, has practically no serious famine on record. Indeed, 1662-63, scarcely a Dhaka was described as an unprecedented phenomenon for that province. Similarly, Malwa seems to have largely lived up to its reputation of being perennially free from scarcity. The Upper Gangetic Plain was not so fortunate, but the one great famine involving large-scale mortality took place just before the beginning of our period. Only one famine of similar dimensions is recorded in Bihar, on the other hand, the provinces in the Indus Basin, Gujarat and the Mughal Deccan seem to have been much more vulnerable to natural calamities and suffered repeatedly. Um, in perhaps, it is perhaps needless to emphasize the extent of distress of famine imposed upon the mass of people. Uh, years of large-scale mortality might have been few, but when they did come, the amount of depopulation could have been frightful. Not only did people die of starvation, they also fell victim to all kinds of pests, particularly the dreaded plague, which followed in the wake of even lesser scarcities. It is not, possibly, it is not possible to estimate exactly the degree to which these calamities uh, counteracted to natural growth and population. It's possible to exaggerate the effects of respect. The famines of 1630-1602 might have demanded, sorry, denuded large portions of Gujarat or living beings, but for the next three generations, at any rate, nothing like it occurred. Similarly, the central provinces had full hundred had a full hundred and fifty years within our period to recover from depopulation suffered in 1554-56. Uh, there were, however, other miseries besides debt which famines heaped upon the poor. Their consumption well dangerously below the necessary level of subsistence, and we have occasionally a glimpse of what they have. They were forced to eat in times of dirt. Um, it is accepted that um, grassroots became the common food of the ordinary people. I mean, literally grass. I'm not talking grassroots movement, grass as in the green grass. Their roots became the common food of the ordinary people, it says. The wasted fields drove peasants from their homes to seek substance in distant regions. Each scarcity was marked by phenomenal glut in the slave market. Yes, there were slaves and people were sold as slaves for money. Uh, the famines from time to time introduced into solid isolations ag of ag agricultural production, a terrible element of fluidity and devastation. If there had been nothing else, this alone would have sufficed to explain the migratory char characteristics of the peasantry, which was such a marked feature of the agrarian life of the time. My dear friends, um, I'm not just tired of talking about... Uh, reading that chapter to you. I am sick to my stomach to think what uh, our forefathers went through during this time. 
None of it was told to us, none of it whatsoever. We have not dissected it. We have not introspected. We have not gone to the Atwa. All that lies in between, the layers and the layers and the layers of damage. Why did so much of famine occur? Why did they not have a way of, of knowing a famine? Because India has been a land of pen, plenty, should I say Bharat has been a land of water and agriculture for thousands and thousands of years. Our ancestors knew how to deal with this. Uh, they had ponds, they had lakes, they, had, they were built around water systems and they knew how to deal with water systems. But we forgot and we were occupied by people who came from outside, who had no way of, 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 uh, of maintaining this, no way of understanding the Indian subcontinent, no way of, uh, no management whatsoever. They were foreigners. The Mughals were foreigners. The Delhi Sultanate was foreign, foreigners. The Tughlaqs, the Lodis, the Ghaznavids, all foreigners. The Arabs were foreigners. They wouldn't have known. And because of that, they imposed on us a way of life and uh, that was not suitable to the Indian subcontinent. And because they didn't know how to deal with it, we floundered. Now, we have plenty of food today in India. Should I say plenty? A lot of people dying of starvation, but there's plenty of food uh, all the same. But it's management of the land, the water around it. When the water table... Um, goes too low, you have to change your crops, you have to alternate your crops. Now, every farmer who is a generational farmer will know that. And that's why the government, the, uh, the BGP government introduced farm laws uh, recently, and there was a huge cry about it by the Indian National Congress and all their goons uh, supported by the uh, Khalistani uh, you know, terrorists, should I call them? And, I, and I'm and i sorry, but they are Khalistani terrorists to me. Um, yeah, funding money to stop the farm laws. So why? Because one of the biggest problems in Punjab and, 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 and the rest of India is the water table is too low because we're going into another famine. And this time we don't have thousands of people. We are 1.4 billion people. If there's no food, can you imagine what's going to go on? They want the country to fail and that's why they stopped the farm laws so that we could... Yeah, so that we will starve and India will collapse. That's what they want for us. And they want to repeat this era of uh, famines uh, and scarcity and poverty. So uh, the best you can do, my dear friends, is to read, to gain the knowledge the most, uh, not to be angry, but to heal from the inside. Somewhere up the, up the line, we have an ancestor all who, who went through these periods and who who as children, their uh, parents died, who they sold, they were sold into slavery, they were sold into uh, for food, they were sold for money. Uh, very much what is going on in Afghanistan right now. Those were our families. Somewhere up the line, we were... So we were all a slave, we were all someone's orphans, we were all sold, we have an ancestor like that, and somehow we've come through this time and survived, and today we've got families and food, but up the line, the cycle and the cycle, uh, the currents that form the waves, all of us would have gone through this, our ancestors, and to those children who still live into us, in us, their souls who are still hungry for 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 their parents who sold them for food and for hunger um i say to them it's time to heal it's time for all of us to heal and say we're sorry for the past we're sorry we could not 
maintain the spirit. We sorry when this, the land went into such difficult times, but those that child 500 years ago still lives in us and is still crying. And that's why today the trauma that we feel, the trauma in our minds and our hearts, we are still hurting and we try and take it out on everyone else, but it's a trauma on the inside. In um, trauma that is now in 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 embedded deep into our DNA and cycle after cycle. So you have to heal, my friends. Understand what went on. Understand the troubles that went on. Understand why it went on. What can we learn from the Spirit? How can we change it? How can we use this knowledge and, and to go forward and, and be better and heal and have a better country? So uh, this is for you. Again, it's from the book Irfan Habib, The Aggregate System of Mughal India, 1556 to 17, uh, Buy it read it and um, yeah heal um thank you so very much i'm going to try and do another chapter after this podcast maybe another podcast but uh yeah absolutely um i definitely want you to get to know about this and uh, i say to you heal as much as possible thank you very much my friends cheers and god bless